This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're going back into our archive to 2013 and we've got a hangout where we're joined by David Devonish who leads the Catalyst Network of Churches. David will be sharing with us seven lessons that he has learned over a lifetime of church planting experience. You can find this full hangout including the Q&A that follows it and all the notes that go with it at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 3. So without further delay, here's David. Okay. Uh, what I thought I'd do is firstly give my own credentials a little bit, which is not something I like doing. But uh, if someone's going to teach you about lessons learned in church planting, I want to show, demonstrate that it's not uh, simply theory or stuff that I've got from a book, but stuff that I've experienced myself. And... Uh, so I'll give you my own story. I was involved in planting the church that I'm still part of a long time ago, before church planting was particularly popular. In fact, we planted ours in the late 1970s. Um, and the, the church that I'm still part of, I wasn't leading it at the beginning, uh, but soon did so. Much of it was done through our home, uh, though we fairly quickly met on Sundays in a school. Um, and then in the mid-80s, so we got that church established. Uh, I was, as I'll be talking about later, was actually uh, working, uh, firstly working for the government, then working as a banker during that time of planting the first church. And then after I'd actually started leading the church full-time in the mid-80s, we planted from our own church, two other churches in Bedford. And uh, that was really not the classic way of church planting. Basically, we were multi-site before anybody had heard of multi-site. Only we called it congregations in those days. And, uh, and so we decided to launch those congregations, all, both of which were growing as autonomous churches. Then in the 90s, um, I launched what I called the Midlands Initiative, which was uh, as a result of an encounter with God I had on holiday in Turkey when I'd been in Ephesus and uh, then travelled to some of the places where Paul, where churches were planted as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus in the, in the surrounding area. And uh, as I got back on the bus on a tourist trip, God spoke to me and said, would you like to plant a whole region of churches? So I said yes, and he gave me a strategy for that, to train people, coach people, and, uh, and, and then launch churches in the Midlands. And so we actually started about 10, between 10 and 20 churches over the next five years. My own role in that was training people, 
sending people and then coaching them. And all those who felt called to go to the Midlands um, made themselves available for this. And uh, I think I've... Have I lost you? Because I can't see myself speaking anymore. No, you're so good. I'm okay. And... uh, So what I used to do during that time was preach on Sunday morning in my home church and then in the evening went up to different clusters of church plants in the Midlands, gathered those clusters together and taught and trained them in church planting. Then the, so that was in the 90s. In the, uh, more recently, over the last 10 to 12 years, I've been establishing apostolic based churches in the Russian speaking world and helping them to church plant. And then I've been coaching those overseeing the church plants. So for example, uh, we, uh, Scylla and I spend a lot of time in one particular church in Southern Russia. And that's got, I had a real church planting initiative and is now working in, uh, has got 72 churches and church plans going in southern Russia over the last 10 to 12 years. So that's very encouraging, and I've been sort of involved in stimulating that, really. And then finally, uh, the other thing I'm doing at the moment is sending and overseeing church planting teams to unreached people groups. So that's uh, helped training them to learn culture, training them to contextualize, training them to uh, learn, uh, enabling them to learn language until they can plant churches in unreached people groups. So those are the five stages that I've been involved with in church planting. Obviously, for uh, most of you, not all, but most of you are planting within your own culture, um, and therefore I won't spend quite as much time on the cross-cultural stuff at the moment. Okay, so lessons that I've learned and I've noted down a few others and I'll try and illustrate them as well it's essential at the beginning to both build a strong sense of community but also evangelism from day one sometimes I find that people will say we're going to build the community first and then uh, we'll reach out I feel that that almost immediately starts what's primarily a pastoral rather than an evangelistic community. And so what we did when I planted my first church, we we built a very good community amongst the core group that went. There were 16 of us. But right from the start, we did evangelism. It wasn't very clever evangelism in those days. Uh, Not all the things we can do now. We simply knocked on people's doors on a housing estate. But actually, and we saw converts from that, but actually what we did was establish in the DNA of the church plant right from the beginning that it was evangelistic. And so although you want to build excellent community, it's important that you do that on mission from the start. It's not that we build community which then does mission. It's rather that our objective is mission, but we form, we form great communities to do that mission together. And so we did that largely through our own home, 
Our home was open for the core group of people, but it was also open for um, new converts and interested people. Uh, we ran, and I'm not saying everybody should do this, we ran an open home policy at that time. We, had, we didn't know who would be spending the night with us. Sometimes people who were um, in real tough situations, perhaps coming off drugs or uh, in other difficulties, would just come and spend time in our house. Sometimes we'd take them in for a few days. Uh, these would be either new converts or people interested in the Christian gospel. And we just made our home a center of community, both for the, grow for the, for the growing church, but also for people around. Now, not everybody has the grace to do that. My wife has a very strong gift of hospitality. Uh, children who were young at that time quite enjoyed having other people in the house. They'd sort of been used to that for quite a long time. But it meant that through our home, we established both community and an evangelistic uh, lifestyle. Now, that we had to obviously live very flexibly. At that time, I was we were living in Bedford. I was traveling down I was commuting to London each day so that meant I left the uh, home at seven o'clock in the morning um commuting to London was sometimes traveling abroad on business uh but Scylla opened a home during the day and therefore there was com evangelistic community established from the beginning we made many mistakes in that sometimes we didn't draw the boundaries strongly enough but nevertheless it was a help to getting that church started okay so that's the first lesson that i've learned and i've always encouraged churches i've been involved in planting to even while they're while they're gathering a core group of christians to be evangelistic right from the start secondly this is helpful it was helpful to me though it's not essential because others have done it in different ways to be bivocational at that time. You might say, how on earth could you plant a church on a housing estate in Bedford when you worked in London? And uh, people have often asked me that question, uh, and I've, I have sent and trained some people who started working full-time. I, I had, as I say, a very busy job, but was also involved in church planting. And why was this helpful to me? And how did I manage? What I found was that because I was not around a lot of the time, I was down in London, it ensured that the whole core group took responsibility for the church plant. And saying the first little bit I wasn't leading, somebody else was, but then he handed over to me. And I, there was a tremendous sense that everybody within the core group of the church was taking responsibility for what happened in it, for its evangelism, um, and there were others who were more available. One guy had just taken early retirement, and so he was more available, and he'd previously been the local policeman in the area, and so that worked quite well, actually. He knew lots of people. And so... It, ena it enabled the whole group to take responsibility for the church plant rather than sometimes happening leaves most of the initiatives to the church plant leader. 
I had a, secondly, it was helpful to me because I had a, a job I enjoyed and this was particularly motivational through tough times in the church. You know, I sometimes used to joke that if things were going badly at work, at least they were great in the church. And if things were tough in the church, well, at least I was getting some deals at work. And actually, motivationally, through those early starting times, I found that very helpful. Next, it kept me in touch with how people were thinking outside the church. So I said, well, don't you get that from evangelism? Yes, you do. But I was just rubbing shoulders with people all the time and therefore, and seeing people come to Christ in my office. And that actually was a, an encouragement to be seeing people coming to Christ in the church plant. It also, strangely enough, helped, sh- helped build the sense of community because I couldn't just plough on on my own. Not only did people take responsibility, but they, they developed a sense of community by, by that sense of everybody involved in the mission. To be fair, Scylla at that time uh, didn't have employment outside of the home. She had young children and she didn't uh, work outside the home. And that enabled our home to be open during the day. And so she had as probably a bigger role than me in terms of getting to know people during that time. So I actually found bivocational helpful in my first church plant. I went full time when we got around to about 70 people. Okay, that, so that's the second thing. Helpful, though not essential to be bivocational. Third thing I've learned the importance of coaching as well as training. Often we've put an emphasis on training. Training is what you do before people go to do something. Coaching is what you do when they're actually facing the problems. Now, in the, when I led my first church plant, I wasn't getting coaching anywhere uh, officially, but I just sought out relationships with people I trusted from outside the church. But when I launched the Midlands Initiative, I built coaching in as a very important principle. So, for example, uh, what I used to do, I used to uh, send questionnaires out every month, how things are going, and I got people to write down the joys they were finding and what particular problems they were facing in their church plants, which they were like answers to. And then I would coach them together. So I'd bring sometimes four or five church plant leaders together and would answer everybody's question in front of all the others, and then it would all chip in. And so that was a, a very helpful way of coaching because people learnt over issue, learnt about issues they weren't facing at the time. Um, and we did that for about uh, for about two years until churches got well established. As I say, I didn't have it myself, but if you haven't got any formal coaching arrangement, it's very important you build good relationships with people you trust who can give you good advice. Remember one guy planting a church. He rang me at he just got he'd got gathered a small group together and about twenty people and he rang they were all nearly most of them were quite young and he telephoned me about five in the morning and said in the night someone in our church plant someone quite young has died what do I do now 
I did, therefore I told him, helped him what to do. But the next time we all got together, I did some coaching on how you handle things like that. And so it's, it's very practical stuff. The fourth thing I learned is battle for the first fruits. Um, it's a principle I've found in Christian life generally. I've got a whole chapter on it in my book on spiritual warfare, demolishing strongholds. And it is a battle to get your first converts. It's a, a battle to establish the community. It's a battle. And sowing and reaping is very important in this context. And what I found is often I've reaped somewhere different from where I was sowing. So I might have been doing loads of door knocking in a particular area, then see converts suddenly come by the drawing of the Holy Spirit elsewhere. But it's been a but it's a, a battle to get your first converts, it's a battle to multiply your groups for the first time, all these sort of things which really have to be prayed through and recognized as a battle. Then the other battle I found, which was absolutely heartbreaking, we saw a number of people saved within the very first uh two years of our first church plant. And then after about two further years, a number of them fell away and one or two others decided to join another church. And so our new converts, we built everything on. It was a battle to keep them as well as to get them. Uh, some of those People I still see in town today, some of those back still, they're all very friendly to me. They give me a, a very warm greeting. And I still pray they'll come back. But actually, even though those fell away, they became part of the critical mass of new people in the church. They enabled many others to join. And so though that was a very painful battle, and I realized that I didn't fully understand the nature of it at the time. Actually, they were also essential in helping the church to grow. And so we need to recognize that and get prayer support for it. And also recognize the emotional pressure there is on church planters in that sort of situation and don't give up. Okay, another, another thing I've learned, grow through a fringe of the church. I remember Colin Barron coming to our church in the early days and he decided he was at that time in charge of putting um, large evangelistic teams for a year, which was a predecessor of what we now have as a frontier project impact, where you had a team of 12 coming to a church for a year to do evangelism. And Colin said, I want to put a team in your church, which was a new church then, because you've got a big fringe because he, he recognized that actually that's how churches grow. You know, they don't, okay, some people get m massively saved on a first encounter. Most churches grow through a fringe. So you need to establish a fringe for all, and how you do that depends on your own gifts and your own situation. 
friendships, social events to which people outside the church are invited, kids club, youth outreach, youth social action projects, and so on. Now, although it's difficult to do those things on a large scale when you've got a small number of people, it's important to keep saying to yourself, what sort of fringe are we building? Not just how many people have been saved, not just how many have joined our church, but how many people are we now in contact with who would consider themselves as having a good relationship with us? So that was a, the, if anyone's counting, the fifth lesson I've learned. Sixth lesson, establish core values and vision at the beginning. Now, when I started church planting, our church did not belong to any apostolic network. It wasn't even charismatic. Um, it, and we'd certainly not been trained in church planting. We were just blessed by the Baptist church that, was, that we'd been part of and sent out to do it. Um, but we decided that we'd spend the first two years each week in our midweek meetings going through what we really believe the Bible taught about church. As I say, it wasn't because we had any program, it wasn't because anyone told us to do this. And actually, it was even doing that that made us realize all sorts of things. We became open to charismatic gifts because we saw that New Testament church had charismatic gifts, even though we weren't from a charismatic background at all. We went through Scripture to see what Scripture taught about church life. We even noticed that elders were appointed in the church by an apostle or someone from outside the church who was overseeing it. But we were totally independent. We had no relationship with anyone. So we didn't know how to appoint elders because that's the way it happened in the Bible. And so, I mean, when, uh, in, 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 in most of your situations, you're a million miles away from that. But it's very important that we... Um, really establish that from the beginning, go through values and uh, be clear on what the vision of the church uh, of the church is. Okay, so I always encourage that to be done now. In whatever context we are, whether it's in a whether it's in the Russian speaking world, whether it's in an unreached people group, even as new people come in, first establish the core values. Um, I can't mention places, but in some parts in the, in the Middle East where we've seen church, a, a particular church grow quite quickly, um, even as they were getting visitors every Sunday, they were still using their Sunday to establish core values. And then... The final thing, and then I'll, I haven't quite done half an hour, but that's fine. Uh, the final thing is uh, don't go public too fast unless the context demands it. And uh, I think probably in my first church, we were in public too fast. It means you had, you have to, stretch yourself to provide all the kids' work and everything else, but uh, build the community, multiply the groups, do the evangelism. However, 
if the context requires a public meeting because that's what the people you're reaching more relate to, then you have to do it. Don't ever allow these sort of things that anyone's teaching you about the best way to church plant mean that you take something from another context and apply it wrongly in yours. And again, in one situation in a country where Christians are a tiny, tiny minority, actually the government is very suspicious of people who meet in small groups. But if you have a public meeting, the people are more willing to come. And so church, our church in that context, we established a public meeting very early on because the context required it. In one of the, uh, in a book, Unreached, which some of you have probably read about reaching housing estates in Britain, um, the point's made that in some of our estates, people are not accustomed to going into people's houses for nice little meals. They're much more accustomed to meeting in the social club or the pub. And therefore, if you invite them for a formal meal around your home, which, you know, may be appropriate in other contexts, they all feel, they feel slightly awkward. And... Um, and therefore, actually doing some sort of public event or in some sort of public venue may actually help you add people that relate to that more easily than they relate to going around people's homes. doesn't mean there's lack of community. There's perhaps even more community. But that's the way it tends to be expressed. And so my lesson everywhere, obviously, if I'm teaching people in unreached people groups, in another context like that, I spend ages talking about contextualization. But I'm realizing that more and more we must learn to contextualize into the very varied social backgrounds of our own nation. And the way I did it in the past won't be the way to do it now. The principles are fine, but the way I did it won't necessarily be the way you do it. You have to say, how do we contextualize the gospel here? How do we contextualize a community here? How do people relate to community here? And then do that rather than uh, follow a particular method. And so contextualization is, is so much contextualization of preaching style, you know, I started doing storying as my preaching style uh, when I was working in the two-thirds world and then in Russia. But I found when I got back to the UK, actually, the majority of my congregation prefer a storying style of teaching now. And so you do have to contextualize everything to the context. So that's saying it. You have to adapt everything to the context that you're working in and be very free to do that. So, a few lessons. Hope that was of some assistance. 
So hopefully there'll be quite a few of those lessons that you'll find relevant and helpful to the situation that you're in. Just to remind you, if you want to look at the full notes on this Hangout or also listen to the Q&A that follows it, you can do so at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode three. Also on that broadcast website, so thebroadcastnetwork.org, you can find all the rest of our content library with helpful church planting resources, and you can stay in the loop about all our upcoming future hangouts that we have for you.